It is my privilege and honor to introduce uh, Dr. Russell Jung, who is Professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. Dr. Jung is an author of books and articles on race and religion. He has written Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans, uh, Mountain Movers, Student Activism and the Emergence of Asian American Studies, and At Home in Exile, Finding Jesus Among My Ancestors and Refugee Neighbors. In March 2020, Dr. Jung co-founded Stop AAPI Hate with Chinese for Affirmative Action and the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. It tracks incidents of COVID-19 discrimination to develop policy interventions and long-term solutions to racism. Stop AAPI Hate was awarded the 2021 Webby Award for Social Movement of the Year. Dr. Jung is also listed on the Bloomberg 50 for the people and ideas that define global business in 2021. Time Magazine named its co-founders, including Dr. Jung, as among the top 100 influential persons of 2021. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Russell Jung. Russell, thank you so much for uh, being here with us. I see your presentation here, When Racially Traumatized Be Like Water. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you, David. Um, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you for Dr. Josephine Kim's great presentation. I think it really um, does indicate the, the need for mental health services within our church. And, you know, today, um, David just talked about how, um, as one of the co-founders of Stop API Hate, um, I was named one of Time's most influential 100 persons in the world. And ironically, and really pertinent to this conference today, I want to say that um, what if one of the world's most influential people doesn't have the power to change himself? What if I can't even change my own triggered behaviors, much less affect social change? And that's the question that actually, it's not actually a question, it's an, I have the answer is I can't change myself. And I come to this conference not as a mental health expert, but as a broken person. Like you, I'm desperately in need of God's emotional healing. I'm desperately in need of God's mental health. And that's what I want to share with you today. It's my own journey through racial trauma and how especially God's been meeting me in this journey. So what I want to talk about today is how, what it's like to be a hurt person. And you probably can recognize the the trauma that I'm experiencing and how hurt people hurt people. That for me, when I'm feeling threatened, I lash out. When I'm triggered, I have an unhelpful communication response. And I, you probably see that in yourself too. Maybe when your partner has this worn out argument, you respond in a like kind. Or maybe when you're reprimanding your own children, you find yourself speaking in the exact same tone as towards you. We know that history repeats itself, that hurt people hurt people. And that's what I'm going to really explore today. We know that 
even more tragically, abused people abuse people. And there seems to be a cycle of violence that gets passed down intergenerationally. And as much as we try, as much as I've been praying for change, as much as I've gone through counseling and therapy for change, as much as I've had um, small groups hold me accountable, I seem really imprisoned by my own patterns, my family patterns with which I'm stuck. Compounding hurt people being hurt or hurt Russell being hurt and then hurting others, as Dr. Kim said, we're experiencing racial trauma and getting hurt even more as Asian Americans. Um, collectively, we are all together experiencing racial trauma at this moment. Stop AAPI Hate, it's a reporting center that I helped co-founded, has received over 10,000 reports of hate incidents. We did a national survey and one in five Asian Americans experienced direct racism last year. Of those people, one in five have diagnosed racial trauma. That's three or more long-term symptoms. Racial trauma is when people are attacked and hurt and then respond with issues like long-term depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, avoidance of places. That's over a million Asian Americans this past year have undergone racial trauma. And even if you may not have directly experienced it, like Dr. Kim said, we vicariously experience this trauma. Um, unless you're so individualistic, if you see an Asian person attacked, especially an elder, then oftentimes we think that could have been my mother, that could have been my grandmother. And so we're all in some ways, I think, at least one degree of separation from feeling this trauma, experiencing this trauma and needing to be healed from this trauma. So I wanna to talk to you today about this trauma and the impacts it's had on me and how it's impacting our community and how it's been perpetuated and actually fomented by institutional factors. I wanna show how um, if we don't deal with this racial trauma, it's gonna be intergenerational. It's a lot like Japanese American incarceration in that it's impacting an entire generation and will have long-term impacts. But the good news is that in the midst of this dark time, I think God meets us and that God offers transformative help, hope. And so what I want to do is use um, what I've been learning, learning from um, psychologists like Dor um, Dr. Doris Chang from New York University, and how we as Asian American Christians need to be like water. And I'll explain that further, but water is clear. Water is humble. Water is persistent and water is restorative. And I think these are some principles that we can use to heal from the racial trauma and not only go beyond healing individually, but make restorative change for our society. So last summer on my way to Big Sur on a family vacation with my family, I just exploded in anger at my wife and my son. I don't even recall how long I was uh, ranting incoherently, but they said it, it seemed interminable. My unabated fury just terrified my family. They were, they said, walking on thin ice 
silent lest they break through that ice. And sadly, you could have predicted um, this incident. You probably can predict it in the future if you know my backstory. Last year, um, before the Big Sur incident, I have been had been working with Stop API Hate nonstop, hearing again those thousands incidents of racism. And because um, the nation was grieving, after the Atlanta shootings, after the Indianapolis shootings, I was leading sessions about how to stop API hate and having moments of silence for all the people who were killed by racial violence. And I was doing that on a daily basis. And every time I did it, I came out shaking, literally physically shaking. Because I was mourning people like Pak Ho, a 75-year-old Chinese American in Oakland where I live. He weekly volunteered at the church food pantry, but he just got pushed and shoved while he was um, walking down his neighborhood street and he died of a brain hemorrhage. I lamented over the deaths of individuals like Christian Hall and Angelo Quinto. The police, Floyd was. So I'm glad I gave that opportunity for people to grieve but as you can imagine, it really took its toll on me. And by, by the end of summer, I was really looking for a break, really longing for a vacation. But then because of the California wildfires, um, we had to cancel. So I had this one weekend where I really wanted to go on a break and be on vacation with my family. And while we were on our way, my partner Joanne said innocuously, how long does it take to get to Big Sur? Do we have enough time? And at that innocuous question, I just erupted. I reacted violently, not just because um, my plans had been interrupted, but I was actually responding to some childhood experiences I had as a, as a kid with my own family while on vacations. So an innocuous question and I just react violently. And that's because when I was growing up, my father really was a genial person who loved children. He loved going out to eat. He was Chinese, of course. He loved um, going to big spectacles and events. And he would love taking us on vacation, showing that he could take care of his family. And so I would really um, be sleepless in anticipation for these family vacations where we would take long low tri road trips. But at some times, however, while we're going on these road trips, we would get lost. And history then would repeat itself. My father would, would ask my mom, where are we? And she'd have to take out a map from the glove compartment without any GPS back then and stare perplexedly at where we were. My dad then would become more insistent, which, where should I go? Where should I turn? And my mom, perplexed, would be lost looking at that map. And so at the breakdown of that communication, that, that inability to take care of his family, the, the frustration over my mom's silence, my dad would just get so upset. 
And again, like me, he would just explode with an angry outburst of anger. And, and Cal, you know, I would be sitting in the front seat with him. We, again, we were just really quiet, um, just wanting not to infuriate him even more. And in those times, I remember, like, I was, I loathed that bullying and uncalled for behavior of my dad. I was so angry that he made my mom so bullied, so so voiceless. And I actually remember, even as a little kid, I vowed I'm never going to be like my dad in that way. And of course, today I've become like my dad. In the same situations with people in the same relations, I act in the exact same manner as my dad. As much as I will to be that way, as much as I and I pray and sought help for it, I'm a bully. I can act in ways that traumatize others that actually may be abusive, and I really need help. That's because hurt people hurt people. This year I observed another truth. Racism hurts people. And here's just one example. You could read it in the um, presentation. We've been terrorized by a racist offender. We feel afraid for our safety, emotionally traumatized. We are on edge, constantly fearing intrusion into our home, cannot sleep well at night, unable to walk outside due to fear for our safety. So as I said, Millions of Asian Americans are experiencing this type of racism, direct attacks, and then experiencing the hurt, the fear, um, the trauma response to these hurts. Um, like this woman talked about, people are hyper vigilant, on edge, always fearing intrusion. They're facing sleeplessness. They're avoiding places of going outside. We're anxious and depressed. And that's the nature of racial trauma. Um, you can see it in this headline. Um, racial trauma is really the fear of danger. It's a response to threat. And so if we've been attacked before, we know what it feels like, and then we fear it happening again. It is dangerous out there. One out of six Asian Americans who were Report to us have experienced have experienced physical assault, actual bodily harm. If we aren't physically attacked, we're experiencing verbal harassment to such a degree, again, that we're frozen and we go into fight or flight response. Even beyond the harassment, we're getting attacked and we we feel the the moral injury of how unfair and unjust these experiences are. Our youth are experiencing this. One out, out, out of half of our incidents at Stop API Hate, people are using racial slurs, are using profanity, often in gang bullying forms to attack us. So being traumatized, feeling hurt, and then experiencing that danger actually makes real, real sense. It's a biological, physical response. It actually resides in our bodies. 
So what happens then is if we experience this racism, we become hurt people who then hurt people. And oftentimes that hurting reaction involves themselves and those nearest to me, them. Um, what happens is, is that people are stigmatizing Asian Americans and then we may then self-stigmatize ourselves. We may actually internalize that racism and react in really, really negative ways by internalizing and pointing that anger, that fear, that danger inward. And let me just give you a couple of examples of how racism has hurt people who've hurt themselves. If you look at this person's response, he said, a customer began screaming at me for no reason. I'm Chinese and my family's been in San Luis Obispo since the 1860s. I'm a fourth generation in San Luis Obispo, but guess I will never be an American. So in this case, again, it's an elder. He feels like he'll never belong. And that as much as he tries, he can't fit in. And that's, again, what Dr. Kim talked about, the perpetual foreigner stereotype. A lot of us internalize this. We look different. And so we have this imposter syndrome that we really don't fit in. As much as we try, even I, in the academy, I don't feel like I fit in. I don't feel like I belong. And even though I perform the way you're supposed to, I never really feel at home. And that might be one way that racism hurts ourselves. Racism also hurts ourselves is that, um, again, if we're shame-based, we actually have a heightened sense of being othered. We have a heightened sense of when we don't fit into a group, right? And so being called out, being attacked for being Asian, then what we'll try to do is try to fit in even more. We'll actually blame ourselves and say, what did I do wrong for sticking out? And what we'll try to do in response to racism is try to assimilate as much as possible. We'll try to be quiet maybe so that people don't, we don't stand out to others or we assimilate so much that we lose our Asian background. Um, another response to racism that actually hurts ourselves is dismissal and denial. I know a lot of times um, what I do is I may get hurt, I may get um, insulted, but then I dismiss it saying, well, that's not as bad as what other people have. Again, with a shame-based culture, we're always comparing ourselves and we'll think playing the Olympics oppression or the oppression Olympics, we'll say, well, at least I don't have it as bad as refugees who've gone through war. I don't have it as bad as African-Americans who went through slavery. And so we minimize our pain. Or if you're like me, then you just totally deny those negative emotions. I grew up thinking I should be anxious with nothing. So I got to squash down worry. I, I grew up thinking I got to take the Bible literally. So I, I can't be angry. And so I just avoid emotions as much as possible. So by, even though we're hurt, by dismissing that hurt or by not denying that hurt, then we don't take care of that hurt. We don't let God meet us in that hurt. And as Dr. Kim said again, we may scab over, we may heal, but we'll heal as broken people and broken people then break other people. So
what's even worse is that racism hurts us and then we hurt ourselves, but racism can hurt us and racism hurts people who hurt people, especially those nearest to them. Just like me, I took out my anger on my family. And within the Asian American community, domestic violence rates are sky high. Domestic right, violence, intimate personal violence, intimate partner violence, it's higher in Asian America than it is in Asia because a lot of immigrants are going through acculturation stress. We're facing downward mobility, we experience racism. And so we have a lot of frustration and anger and oftentimes we take it out on those closest to us, our partners and our children. So racism hurts people who hurt people. Racial trauma not only resides in our bodies and makes us hurt ourselves, but it actually gets passed down to the next generation. Studies have shown how racial trauma actually is epigenetic and alters our genes so that the next generation oftentimes has a heightened um, fight or flight response, especially in the same situations that their parents experienced it. So perhaps generations of my family's explosive anger can explain why I act the way I do. And again, I don't want to blame or absolve myself from responsibility. It is my sin. It is my, um, I have to take ownership over how I behave, but understanding the roots of my racism helps me unroot the, the trauma, helps me unroot my behaviors. So let me give you examples of how racism hurts people intergenerationally. My great grandmother, Hawkeye, came to Monterey, California in the 1860s. And she lived there for 40 years, um, raising a family and then got widowed. She then uh, met my great grandfather, Jung Kwong Kwok. Um, and even though, um, so that there, there are two single people, but because of the 1875 Page Act, Chinese women were excluded. And so there were very few in, um, eligible Chinese single women back then in the um, turn of the century in 1900. So my so a lot of guys were, were seeking um, my great grandmother's hand in marriage because she was one of the few Chinese women around. The, the ratio was 26 to one. Because my great grandfather, according to family lore, was good with children, Gok Tai's kid said, you should marry him. And so my great grandfather well, was one of the lucky guys to be able to marry this eligible 44 year old single Chinese lady. Unfortunately, again, because of the anti-Chinese racism at the time, first Chinese women were excluded. And then in 1882, um, anti-Chinese anti racism was so high that the um, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. But even that legislation that expressed the the racism of the people it didn't quell the racism and along the west coast even after the chinese exclusion act over 200 chinese settlements were actually forcibly mass displaced by mob violence they were actually driven out um, by mob violence so in monterey california where my great-grandparents lived the landlord evicted them 
because the townspeople wanted them out. When the Chinese wouldn't leave, a fire broke out and burned down the village. Newspaper accounts said that um, the morning after looters came and people cheered as they saw um, the destruction of the village. The landlord put a fence around the village so that Chinese couldn't return. And so you can imagine the trauma that my great grandparents had experienced. They had lived there for four decades, raised families, built two homes, had a thriving business, and they saw their life's work, their family home burned down in an instant. My great grandparents then had to move to San Francisco as the only place of refuge um, from the racism at that time. I'm sure my great grandparents then responded to that trauma and then maybe ex expressed it to my grandfather. Even though he was an American born citizen, he too faced racism. He had to go to a segregated school, even though he was an American citizen, he didn't have the same education rights. And when he wanted to get his bride from Hong Kong, even though he was an American citizen, his parents' testimony didn't count. And he had to have three white witnesses to verify that he was an American citizen. Um, he brings his bride over, my grandmother, Ho Lin Chen, but then like hundreds of thousands of other Chinese, they were mass detained. When migrants came from Ellis Island from Europe, they were processed and allowed to disembark within two to three hours. Chinese instead were mass detained for weeks or months under barbed wire and armed guards. Um, because Chinese were seen as disease-ridden people, like today, um, the Chinese had to go through severe close medical checkups. And if found to be medically unfit, they were deported. If um, because um, Chinese were seen to be illegal, they had to go through these lengthy, grueling interrogations. And so you can imagine my grandfather's hurt and pain to see his new bride come. And the first thing that happens to her is that she gets imprisoned, um, gets abased by having to strip naked before a Western doctor, and then has to be grilled, um, grilled with 56 questions of her personal life. That's my grandmother's first experience of America. That pain, that hurt, that feeling of unbelonging gets passed down to my father. He grew up during Jim Crow and exclusion periods where Chinese faced de facto segregation. So my dad grew up in San Francisco Chinatown where they had parallel institutions. Because we were locked out of regular institutions, we had our own churches, we had our own phone lines, we had our own basketball leagues. My dad was an American vet who got the GI Bill, but when he finished college and scored the highest on the civil service exams, he said once people saw him, he wouldn't get hired. My family recounts one trip, again, my dad loves those vacations, where they went to Palm Springs. And even though the hotel sign said vacancy, they weren't given any rooms. They finally found one hotel that allowed them in. And even though those resorts actually hired Chinese, um, my, my parents, even though they were allowed in, 
were ordered to only take room service because they didn't want their other guests to be to be able to, to see other Chinese guests. And so my 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 parents with their two year old son had to take um, had to dine in their own room, sequestered and out of sight of others. So, again, my family's never returned to Palm Springs ever since that incident. So now you could see racism impacts generation after generation, that feeling of otherness, that feeling of not belonging, the reasons why we may be more quiet. It's not because that's our culture. It's because we've been beat down and then institutionally disenfranchised to be silent. And so my son, a fifth, sixth generation Chinese American Matthew, he now bears the brunt of a lot of this trauma. He has to go on family vacations and hear my ire and my frustration that's been built up across centuries now. My son actually recognizes the historic institutional racism. He knows that because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, my great grandparents had to move out and that's why we live in San Francisco. He knows that because of racism that his grand, great grandparents had to um, spend time in Angel Island and my, my own grandfather um, had to feel the pain of family and mass separation. He knows that uh, my father couldn't stay at certain hotels because he, and he sees how policies have impacted us and even today, he recognizes all these policies that continue to exclude Chinese as a yellow peril. Just two years ago, President Trump's administration banned Chinese scientists, cut migration visas so family couldn't reunite, cut refugee resettlement, cut H-1B visas. All these policies disproportionately impacted Asians institutionalized us as the yellow peril, threats to be excluded from our nation um, because of public health or national security reasons. So my own son knows that pattern. My own son feels that pattern. And sadly, he's getting exposed to the racial trauma that has long affected my family. So what do we do with all this racial trauma? How do we heal from it? How do we address it? And again, as Dr. Kim talked about, how do you help address it within your congregations? Now, as Dr. Kim talked about, and when I think about it, I think about it from a Western medical lens. If we're wounded and face trauma, and if we're emotionally or mentally experience moral injury, what we need to do is then go to therapy and hopefully theory would lead to our healing. And this is the model, the Western medical model, the Western mental health model. Now for me, I get it um, growing up from my generation, but I still don't even know it's, what does healing look like? If I'm getting traumatized by racism, I could learn to cope with it through therapy, 
but there'll still be racism all around me and I'm gonna get triggered again and again. What does healing look like in a context of persistent racism? And even today I ask people, what's healing to racial trauma? Is it not being triggered? Is it, you may experience the feelings, but you regulate them? I don't even know, fully know what racial healing looks like. And I think for other Asian Americans, this model, this Western mental health model actually is really problematic. It is stigmatizing. First of all, a lot of our elders, we don't even have a, a, a word for mental health. We don't even think about ourselves trauma being traumatized. Again, we're learned to accept it. We learn to deny it or dismiss it. And so going to a mental health specialist seems sort of weird. And even more problematic with this model is it seems so individualistic to me, right? I go and see a therapist for my individual problems and I get individual healing. And it seems, and especially I need to take self-care. And for me, it seems like, wow, that's sort of pretty focused on oneself and a little bit too hyper-individualistic. Um, and I know this is the way Americans are. I know there are other Americans that are very individualistic. So I think this, this model really is problematic in some ways and doesn't make sense in a lot of other ways. But the ideas are sound, the trauma is real, and I think God does offer real healing, but we just have to reframe it in a different way to make it more palatable and understandable in a Christian context. So I'm gonna propose, instead of trying to stigmatize mental health, which is a lot of work, and trying, instead of trying to hyper-individualize our communities and focus on self-care, I'm going to argue that we simply use Christian terms and God's ways of um, thinking things from the Bible and apply biblical principles to this mental health model. What also is helpful for this approach is that it's not so individualized, but it actually gets at the roots of racism by seeking societal change to stop racism from happening and creating the trauma in the first place. So I'm going to argue for a different approach that sees trauma as part of the world's sin and brokenness. We're getting hurt and we're hurting others. That's wrong. I'm wrong when I act so belligerently. And what I need is in going through therapy and in seeking change, I need forgiveness from others, and I need to forgive those who um, hurt me. I need to have grace extended to me, and I need to extend grace to others. And that should be part of that therapy process, that, that individual inner work of change. But it doesn't just stop with the individual. Eventually, as I get healed, I can offer that to others, that as I get redeemed from the hurts, as I get healed from the hurts, then I get restored, and I could offer that to others. So here's my model of um, change that, um, that God's been working in with me, and I'll quickly go through it. We need to be like water. And again, this comes from Taoist principles that I think um, provide an Asian sensibility that's not so either or, um, that's not so individualistic. And so the first quality of water that we need to be like is um, it's clarity. And um, 
for a lot of other people, um, that notion is mindfulness. But mindfulness and clarity isn't mean we hit, doesn't mean that we hit a Zen like nothingness state when we're triggered or facing racial trauma. But we need to do is clarity means being still and know that God is present. Clarity means being mindful of our emotional state, that we are anxious, that we are fearful, that we are angry. But then what we do is we lift that to God. That mindfulness, that clarity is to be aware of our emotional state, which I'm again really bad at, and then offering it to God, letting our requests be known to God so that God can enter into that, that situation. This clarity really then helps us be aware of our emotions, our emotional state, and helps us be able to regulate it. But clarity goes beyond us as an individual. Clarity also means being aware of those around us and how our communication patterns can harm them. It's being aware of the emotional relations that we had in the past that are infecting us now. So clarity is about our emotional state and also about the social relations of how our communications impact and hinge upon others. And for me, clarity means being aware that how I'm acting and how others are acting come from hurt people hurting others. And so that the more I could understand and empathy for the individual that I feel attacked by, the more I understand the institutional factors that are leading them to be racist or socializing them to be racist, then the more I can respond in a better way. So for me, the first step is, is having clarity, having mindfulness of, of our emotional states and then bringing it to God. We should be like water that's humble. And I really love this quality. Water is yielding. Water is soft. Water goes with the flow, doesn't seek its own way, doesn't force its way, doesn't fight back when it experiences racism necessarily, but it seeks alternative paths to go with the flow. I think this is the wisdom that our elders have a lot of times rather than reacting violently to racial trauma um, and then being broken up about it being so fragile, our elders at least have the resilience to accept things and endure for the love of the family. And that could be a strength and a weakness. The strength is they're ready for trouble. They accept suffering. They come to America and go, duh, this is a white society. Of course, you're going to face racism. So that acceptance allows us to, to not always react out of anger and frustration, but to realize, yeah, we live in a broken world and we're going to face trouble. And that acceptance in a certain part allows us to be meek, allows us to walk humbly, allows us to think of others above ourselves. This humility then may enable us to accept what's happening and then be able to forgive others. And for me, um, humility and forgiveness really is a way to free ourselves from the trauma. Our trauma responses are oftentimes we're holding on to anger, we're holding on to resentment, we're holding on to bitterness, and it just erupts at really bad times. 
And instead of trying to squash that down all that time, instead of dismissing it, we have to actively forgive. Again, like Dr. Kim says, it's a daily basis. Our Lord's prayers let, help us to forgive others so that the Lord can forgive us. And so we need to forgive because it frees us up from the anger and the um, frustration that we're holding on, especially against others, and enables us to let go and to be like water that could continue alternatively going in a different way. This alternative response to racism of forgiveness and grace is really countercultural, but it's exactly what Jesus caused us to do to turn the other cheek. This alternative way that's yielding and forgiving um, chafes against our younger generations who always wanna fight, fight, fight. But if we could learn to be um, yielding, to seek an alternative path to righteousness, it doesn't mean we allow sin to continue, but that we respond in a different way that shows God's light. And it doesn't mean that we allow sin to continue. Instead, we need to be like water that's persistent, persistent in seeking first God's righteousness and righteous relations. Its water is persistent in following its path to its ultimate source and doing good. Water is persistent and always keeps flowing. And that's what we need to do in the work of fighting for racial justice and fighting for God's kingdom. We don't say, oh, racism will always be there and allow sin to continue. We need to be angry at racism as much as God is. And water that's persistent drop by drop can erode a rock. Water that's persistent and then joins with other drips and drops in the ocean can create waves of change. And that's what we need to do is we need to be persistent in doing good and fighting for justice so that others don't experience racial trauma. I like this persistent, consistent, faithful journey towards doing what's right. And if we have faith, then we can move mountains. I used to think that verse meant that if we have faith and we prayed, God will instantly move the mountain. But now I'm thinking of that verse differently. If we have faithfulness, if we have faith, we can be persistent in moving that mountain of racism, maybe spoonful by spoonful, shovelful by shovelful. And maybe in our lifetimes, we won't move that mountain. But if we do it and get others to, sh to shovel out that mountain, if we get our next generation to do it, eventually through that faithful work, we can make change and move that mountain. That's the story of the old man who moved mountains. That's a story, if we have faith, we can move mountains. Quickly, for 30 years now, we've been praying um, a group of us Asian American Christians at the Asian American church community would, would, would rise up and really be a witness for God's justice. And after 30 years of prayer, we're seeing God answer that now. We see that with the Asian American Christian Collaborative getting a letter that's been signed on by over 20, 30,000 fellow Christians. We see that in the Center of Asian American Christianity at, at Princeton. We now have created a movement um, through our persistent prayer and through God's answering that in California, 
we got the legislature to fund $166 million to address racism. This year, we've seen in New Jersey, just this past week, Asian American Studies required. We've seen this year, Illinois pass Asian American Studies. So if we're persistent in doing right, if we find alternative ways and yield like water, we can make change. We can see God's um, fruits in our labor. And finally, we have to be like water that's restorative. Water can restore, and if you could see in this picture, water can change a desert into a super bloom that could be seen from space. We need to be restorative to our society. And as we forgive and extend that forgiveness to others, then hopefully we who have been victims of racism can become peacemakers, can extend a message of reconciliation and restore our society. Um, this past year, I was thinking, why are we experiencing so much racism? How am I going to deal with my racial trauma? And I went on an InterVarsity Celtic Way um, retreat. And we learned about St. Patrick, who, when he was a kid, was trafficked to Ireland and lived there as a slave. Um, he escaped, but years later, he returned to Ireland to bring God's good news. I thought that's such a story of God's redemption to use a former slave to bring freedom to the slaveholders, to use what is weak and powerless so that God's presence can be seen there. I mourn the trauma that Asian Americans are experiencing now, the racism. But I think what God's calling us now to do is to heal so that healed people can heal others. I think God's calling us to be restored so that we can be restored people who restore others. Rather than going into fight or flight response, we need to flock, to come together like we are now, get that healing that God's offering, and then again, present an alternative sign to the world, a kingdom culture that's forgiving and restoring reconciling and seeking justice. I think that's what God is doing at this Kairos moment. That's what we're doing this morning is to receive from God, to acknowledge, yeah, we are hurting people. We are broken. Asians don't like to admit it, but the more we acknowledge how weak we are, then his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect. So I would rather boast, yeah, we are experiencing racial trauma. Yeah, I am needing God's help. Yeah, I am angry at the way our society is. And as we allow God to come in and restore us, then we can offer that restoration to others. Thank you, Russell, for your presentation. And I want to encourage our audience to uh, play some questions in the Q&A uh, chat. And I'm already seeing some of those questions that are being upvoted and I'll begin um, addressing them. Russell, I just want to acknowledge your courage and sharing your personal story with us. I think um, you model for us uh, vulnerability and transparency in your advocacy for mental health issues within the Asian American community. This is not easy to do in a shame-based community, as you've mentioned. And 
you've narrated your personal story within a larger historical backdrop, something which we don't often hear about. So thank you for bringing your expertise expertise as an expert in Asian American history, uh, along with your perspective as an Asian American Christian individual, and then to marshal the resources of scripture and theology to uh, encourage further Christian theological reflection on healing and wholeness. Um, so let's pivot to some of these questions. Here's one from Rachel, and let me pin it. How do we call out the truths of the sins of racism against us or any person of color while at the same time being a peacemaker? I learned in my family that keeping peace means being quiet, but I don't find that to be a healthy model. Yeah, that's a great question of how do we call out sins uh, without um, being angry and perpetuating that sin, right? And for me, that's what I need to learn to do is um, how to be prophetic in our call, yet loving at the same time. You know, Jesus was both that he was actually very fierce and angry when it called for, um, the situation calls for it. Um, I'm sure he yelled, um, but um, but he also, again, did it out of love. And so I think um, being peacemakers requires calling out what's at war. Otherwise, we're not going to recognize it. Being peacemakers means calling out what needs to be changed in order for peace to be um, realized. And so I think we do need to acknowledge sin, call it out, express it, demonstrate its harm, and um, then request change. So what I'm learning is nonviolent communication, that rather than just reacting out of my own anger or, using, you know, a lot of times we're using anger because we think our, our, our harsh words would affect change. But instead, nonviolent communication helps us just make observations. That was wrong. And then it allows us to express how we feel. And I feel like, um, so when we talk to our elders, we could express observations and our own feelings. That situation, when you said that, made me feel this way. And it's really hard for people to deny, again, our individual personal experience. So as much as we could express our own hearts, instead of trying to ram facts at people, if we express how we feel, how, how others' statements or reactions make us feel, then hopefully they can learn to empathize. So for me, speaking out enables us to be peacemakers because it allows people to empathize with us. I think as Asian Americans talk about their hurts and pains during this period of racial trauma, then others will see, yeah, that really is wrong and they'll want to change. So I think um, by us sharing our hurts and pains, it enables and allows people to be, to walk with us in our vulnerability. And then maybe if they have any empathy, they'll have some compassion. Thank you, Russell. I have here another question from, where did it go? Hold on. DK Kim, let me show it on the stage. What do you say to the social justice Christian groups? Um, okay, that, that say persistence is too slow when people are suffering and any level of acceptance is enabling the injustice, but I'm totally in sync with you. Again, acceptance doesn't mean acceptance of the wrong. 
Acceptance means accepting the individuals who are perpetrated. Acceptance means accepting that God is still in control. Acceptance means that God, you never know when God's going to answer your prayer. So it's, a, it's not acceptance of everything. I'm not accepting of my sinful ways, of my belligerent, abusive ways. I really want to change. and But you never know when you're going to experience healing. You never know when God's going to speak. And so I would say, yeah, um, fight for change. Demand it. Things are wrong. And um, we need to be persistent about it. But we also need to be accepting of some things Otherwise, you're going to burn out. Otherwise, if you don't realize God's timing, you're going to get frustrated because you're not the one affecting change. That's why I see so much with secular activists. They're using their anger and demanding change now, and they burn out so quickly. But if we trust in and accept God's sovereignty, if we accept God's power, if we accept God's ways, we just need to be faithful, not effective in making change. That's what I mean by persistence. It's that faith that can move mountains over the long haul. Not this, I want change now, and if I don't get it, I'm going to pout. I'm going to, you know, I don't know. Right. I'm an older um, activist. <laughs> we have here a question from Alan, and I'm going to read it. With the diversity within the Asian American community that often leads to fragmentation, how can Asian Americans be better unified towards stopping racism? Yeah, that's a difficult question. And we always recognize um, that, again, the community is diverse. But then we also have to build unity by making those connections, how we're similarly racialized, that we're, again, othered in similar ways. That just the way, um, let's say, South Asians experience Islamophobia as being dangerous threats. East Asians are being seen as dangerous threats. That then, that unity connects us with African-Americans who are seen as dangerous threats and being mass incarcerated. That's in the same way Latinos are being um, seen as dangerous threats and facing mass family separation and detention. So we build unity both on um, points of unity and commonality, but we also recognize the, dif the differences and we as Christians, I think we particularly pay attention to those on the margins the way Jesus does. So even though this person may not be like me, because they're on the margins, because they have less power, then it's my responsibility to use my power, to use my privilege, to support those on the margins. And I think, um, so we build unity, not just by finding what's in common, we build unity by extending hospitality, by extending justice to others. You know, Russell, I was really, I'm still reflecting upon your the alternative model of healing you presented that was not individualistic, but corporate, and your desire to provide a biblical theological vision for that type of community-based corporate redemption and healing. I think of that as the body of Christ. Um, so when it comes to fragmentation between different Asian American ethnicities, perhaps Christianity and religion can, can have a, a unifying force. We have biblical theological resources such as the unity of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, the different body parts um, that find their center in Christ that can be a type of salve uh, when there is fragmentation, whether for racial or ethnic reasons. Um, 
maybe that's too idealistic for me, but what is your take as, a, as an organizer, as an activist, Russell? Is Christianity helpful here for building unity or is it, is it I don't know, am I overestimating the power of, 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 of the church? You know, um, I think Christianity is fragmenting. Christianity, the way it's set up now, is polarizing. But God's love is unifying. God's love is so wide, so deep, that it encompasses both the individual and the institutional needs for change. I like God's holistic vision of saving all of creation. Again, it's both and rather than this Western either or. Either we do personal salvation or we seek social justice. Either we help the individual deal with trauma or we find institutional changes. It's both and. God's love, God, Jesus came to save all of that. Um, and so for me, um, what brings unity in the fragmentation is God's love is, is so vast that we can do both and. He cares both of for our individual and the hairs on our head, and he can, cares about the structures of society that oppress. He cares about all of creation so that all of creation can lift up um, their voices to his glory. So for me, um, that Dallas approach of both and, the, the Asian way of harmony, the Asian way of balance can correct the Western ways that are either or and just sort of put God in a box, put salvation in a box, put mental health in a box. But instead, we recognize the integrated holistic connections that we all face so that our emotional healing leads to our um, desire for um, interpersonal relations. Quickly, I just want to say one thing. You know, Stop BPI Hate has unintended consequences that people are experiencing trauma, but by reporting Stop API Hate, people who report actually have less trauma symptoms. Hmm. By seeking institutional change, by fighting, looking for a collective voice, that translates their anger and trauma into positive action. So again, it's both and. As we seek institutional change, that leads to our individual healing. And our individual healing then allows us to be persistent for fighting for institutional change. So again, everything is interconnected and uh, that's sort of how I see things in a very, or I'm trying to see things in a very holistic way, both other than either or. Let us give um, our gratitude to Dr. Russell Jung for his presentation, for his uh, activism, for his leadership and for his telling us his story within the broader history of Asian Americans and racialization. Thank you so much, Russell. Uh, it's, it's, we, we are blessed through your biblical and theological reflections.